I don't know if you knew this, but today is not only graduation Sunday, but it is also Pentecost Sunday. And it's a day we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk a little bit about that uh, as the service goes on today. Uh, but hopefully today you know what it is to be filled with the Spirit of God. I want you to know that is a gift that God has given. And his desire is that each of us be filled with his Spirit as those who are children of God. I want to start with a brief uh, reflective story. There, there was a sign on the stage that proclaimed, The motionless man, make him laugh, win $100. The temptation was irresistible. For three hours, boys and girls, men and women, performed every antic and told every joke they knew. But Bill Fuquay, the motionless man, stood perfectly still. Fuquay is the Guinness Book of World Records champion at doing nothing. In fact, he appears so motionless during his routines at shopping malls and amusement parks that he is sometimes mistaken as a mannequin. When I heard about Bill Fuquay, the motionless man, he reminded me of a lot of churches that I know. Many individuals, as well as congregations, seem to have mastered the fine art of doing almost nothing. I will say that is not our church, and I love the fact that that is not our church. It's also not what happened on the day of Pentecost almost 2,000 years ago. The church had gathered for a meal. It had been about six, actually about seven weeks since the crucifixion of Christ had taken place. Since then, they had moved from mourning, grief, and sorrow into celebration. They still had a sense of wonder and doubt, but it was different from what they had on the night of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, they wondered at this point what great work God was about to do. It wasn't wondering how are we going to make it, what's going to happen next, are we going to be arrested, are we going to be killed now they began to wonder what great work God was about to do. About the only thing that they knew for sure was that God's story was not over yet. So they gathered in Jerusalem for a meal. Actually, they were doing so in obedience to what Jesus had instructed them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, we read that on one occasion, while he, talking about Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. The gift that had been spoken about on multiple occasions, we see it specifically in the book of Mark and in John, was the gift of the Holy Spirit. But there was more to this meal. It was also a part of a festival. It was called the Festival of the First Fruits. This was an annual celebration to give thanks to the Lord for the harvest. Although there were some later Jews who also related this festival to God's giving of the law, something that again they were very thankful for. But again, on this particular day, God was about to do something spectacular something that nobody would have expected. In fact, although Jesus had promised that the Father would send this Holy Spirit, they likely had no idea what exactly that would look like. 
Well, the day of Pentecost would change everything for the New Testament believers, as well as even for us. I'll come back to Acts chapter 2 in just a bit, and I'll read a little bit of it to you as well as we circle back to the day of Pentecost and what is said. But I want us to take a look at another sermon by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. It's found in Acts chapter 17. If you want, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 28. He is talking to a group of scholars, a group of religious people who seem to follow and worship many different gods. Look at it with me again. Acts 17 verses 22 through 28. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So the Apostle Paul addresses his audience here as religious. It should be noted that his audience likely would have perceived this as a great compliment, although the Apostle Paul probably did not see it in the same way. With so many spiritual connections, there's a good chance that they were good people, morally speaking. There's also a good chance that they're quite proud of this designation to be called religious. However, Paul may not have meant it as a compliment. You see, Paul also had been religious. Sure, he only had one God whom he served. But there's little question as to how religious Paul was. He even brags on his religiosity on a few occasions. He was very good at keeping the law and even holding others accountable to the law. Know that simply fulfilling certain aspects of the law may make you religious. But if you do not have a relationship with the lawgiver, then you still have a problem. And the truth is, Paul had already figured this out. For example, in Proverbs 15:8, we read, The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. Again, we may seem religious and therefore good because we offer a sacrifice. 
but it remains detestable to the Lord because they are not upright. The ones who offer it, if their heart is not right with God, it doesn't matter how religious you may be. You may attend church every Sunday but not have a relationship with God that does not please the Lord. You may be faithful in giving of your tithes and offering, and everybody else will rejoice over it, but God is far more interested in what's happening in your heart than he is any other ritual that you choose to be a part of. In Malachi 1.10, we read, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. All of their religion simply disgusted God. He didn't want more religion. He wanted people who genuinely devoted themselves to him above everything else. He wanted a love relationship with humanity. Well, Paul had already come to this realization. He had reached a point where he saw that all of his religion wasn't able to save himself from himself or from his own sins. Now, Paul will use their spirituality as a tool to introduce them to the one unknown God, the one that they haven't yet discovered. But it's important to note that as he is introducing them to one God, he is not introducing them to one among the many. Instead, he is introducing them to something that is very different. He wants them to see that what we have through Christ is an opportunity at a relationship with the one true living almighty God. I was reading from a book this week entitled Created to Be God's Friend by a man named Henry Blackaby. In it, he uses the relationship between Abraham and God to explain how God desires more than simple obedience. He desires relationship. Well, obviously, not everyone that Paul was speaking to that day would have been devout Jews. He is in a place that is very religious, but not necessarily Jewish. In fact, much of what Paul did was to deal with those who were Gentiles. But even those who were not Jews would have been familiar with Abraham. They likely would have known that as Abraham was a quote-unquote, man of God. Abraham was one who was also referred to as a friend of God. Can you imagine that? A God who longs for friendship, for a relationship with imperfect human beings. And isn't that exactly what God provided as Jesus Christ came in human flesh? To live among imperfect individuals, and to interact with human beings who many of the same people that declared their love for him would also deny him and walk away from him. But he desired that relationship with humanity. This doesn't diminish the fact that he is still God. In Paul's message to the religious, he emphatically states that all life originates from God, something that we have no record of them arguing against. 
Perhaps that's because even as they worshipped all of their other gods, they had to know that there was still something strangely inadequate about what they offered. Their false gods were not able to do everything, but not so for God. Jeremiah 51 verse 15 declares that it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. He is the creator of heaven and earth, the giver of life. He is the one who holds everything together, and one day he will be the one who will judge everyone and every thing. And he didn't just take two things that already existed and put them together and somehow form what we have today. Instead, in the Latin, the term that was used was ex nihilo, which means God created out of nothing. He didn't take two or three other things that somebody else had already made that somehow had existed. Instead, what happened was, as the foundation for everything else, God created out of nothing. When you think about it, what he really does is he speaks it and it happens. He thinks it and it comes into being. Basically, he is the foundation of everything that we have and know today. When you think about it, sin has carried many different consequences in our world. We now experience every day political unrest, division, disease, death, a sinful nature, even natural disasters. Know that none of those things were a part of the world in which God originally created. That means that we have messed up what his creation was intended to be. I remember... Several years ago, I test drove a truck belonging to one of you. It became the most expensive test drive that I have ever taken. While backing it into my driveway, I clipped the side of my mailbox. And I ended up with a scratch down the side of the truck. Sorry about that, Jackie. Obviously... I paid the, I think it was 300 bucks to get it repaired, but the hardest part was having to tell Jackie that I had damaged this truck that belonged to him, because he does a really good job of taking care of his vehicles. Well, as we have been entrusted with God's creation, we haven't taken the best care of his world. In fact, sin has perverted it to the point that it looks very little like the way it did when God created the heavens and the earth. Yet he is still absolutely our foundation. We just haven't taken good care of what he's given us. But you probably knew that already. That's why so many people have turned to various religions in hope of making things right or making them better in some way or another. Those other religions are never going to be the answer. Anyways, what is it that makes Christianity so different from all these other religions? What is it that makes us unique? I have three items that are unique to Christianity, although this is certainly not an extensive list today. There are many other 
items that we could add to the list, but these three are intertwined with everything else that I've been sharing with you this morning, especially related to Acts chapter 2. The first thing that sets Christianity apart from the rest of the religious world is actually found in the Gospel of John chapter 1. It is the fact that the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ, actually became flesh. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came to the Father, came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God, one who is perfect in every way, one who was in the comfort and the perfection of heaven, chose to take on human flesh experiencing all of the frailty that comes with humanity, experiencing all the temptation that is common to mankind, and living among the ungodly perversions of a perfect world that God had created. In essence, the untouchable became touchable. This is very different from what we see in most religious groups we have a God that is untouchable, one that we can never imagine actually being able to have contact with. Yet in Christianity, we have a God who chose to take on human flesh so that he would walk among mankind. In Jesus' case, having all knowledge, when he took on human flesh, he already knew that the end result would be betrayal and crucifixion. It wasn't as if he agreed to come to the earth and later found out what it would cost him. He knew it, but he came anyways. Understand how unique this is from other religious groups. No other religious founder of Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, whatever other religious group you want to include, has ever experienced this type of suffering. Instead, their goal was enlightenment or recognition of some sort. And although Jesus can grant enlightenment and he does deserve recognition, he came to be the sacrifice for humanity. He came to suffer, to seek, and to save that which was lost. What that ought to communicate to every single one of us is that he must love us an awful lot. To think that a perfect God who didn't have to die, who could have enjoyed where he was, but he was not content leaving things the way they were. So he willingly chose to take on human flesh simply so that he could experience suffering and death on our behalf. Well, the second thing that makes Christianity unique from other religions is the fact that the Spirit of God is given to humanity. I talked about it earlier, but in Acts chapter 2, Peter is quoting from the prophet Joel. And it's actually what was read on the screen for us earlier. He says this, And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. According to both Joel and Peter, the gift of the spirit will not be reserved for only a select few. And it won't be some fake power that is used merely to manipulate for personal gain. Instead, we are told that the power of God will be on full display in our children, in our elderly, and even among our servants. I'm reminded of a man named Simon who thought he could somehow buy the power of God. In Acts 8, verse 18, we read, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This man was known as a sorcerer and had a significant following in Samaria. Yet he knew that what he had was nothing compared to what the Spirit of God could do. Everything else is a cheap imitation of what God can do, and it's far greater because God's the one who's doing it. And we need to recognize that this is more than just becoming more intelligent or in achieving enlightenment. This is about the Spirit of God dwelling in you and me. This is about God's presence not being far off, but right inside of you and me. Can you imagine somebody who is great and almighty, someone that you would look at and say, wow, that's the greatest person in the world saying, you know what, I, I want to come and dwell with you. I don't care if you like the president or not, because of the position. Imagine the president, whether the last one or this one, saying, hey, you know what, I, I want to be able to hang out with you. You would say, wow, really? Me? I'm just an average guy. That doesn't make any sense. The thing is, our president's not going to do that. And that's not just the current president. The last president wouldn't either. But that's exactly what God has chosen to do. He chooses to make his dwelling among us, to fill us. This is about God's presence not being far off, but being right here. This is about his power, his wisdom and guidance and conviction continually being with us regardless of whatever else is going on around us. And this is incredibly unique. Now, it should also be noted that as Peter spoke of the last days, his audience likely perceived themselves as living in the last days even then, 2,000 years ago. Some theologians have suggested that this is simply a reference to the New Testament era as opposed to the Old Testament era. The New Covenant was beginning through Jesus Christ. Yet 2,000 years later, we are still living in what we call the last days. And as we refer to the last days, we're not just thinking about the change from Old Testament to New Testament. Instead, we're looking at the coming judgment of God. If we are not already in the last days, they can't be too far off. I know no one knows the day nor the hour. Only our Father in heaven knows when that day will come. But 
as we look at the things that are going on around us, I look and say, we probably are in the last days. Now, I recognize 2,000 years ago, they thought we probably are in the last days. But as I look today, and it would not surprise me if the Lord chose to come back today, tomorrow, whenever. I'm not making that declaration. I'm not a heretic. Please understand that. But the point is, it could happen very soon. As such, there is something that we must do. We must make sure that we are ready for when that last day does arrive. You see, the final thing that makes Christianity unique is found in the coming judgment of God. We are not the only religious, by the way, we're not the only religious faith that supposes a coming judgment of God. However, we are the only one that clearly identifies not only what it will look like, but also a path of how we can truly know that we are ready for that day. Back to our passage in Acts 2, look at verses 19 to 22. It says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There are countless other descriptive passages that will reveal what will happen in the last days. And many of them will stand out as unique. They include natural disasters a falling away, the gospel being spread throughout all nations, and many other elements. But the point is that there is a final day of judgment that will come for all creation. And God, because this is his world, the world that he made, and because he is the only one who has remained without sin, he is also the only one who deserves the right to stand in judgment over this creation. Well, that judgment only has two options. Those two options are heaven and hell. To determine how we get there, it's not about how good you are, because your goodness will never be enough on its own. It is about the grace of Jesus Christ. But because we have received that grace, goodness ought to be a part of us. I mentioned that there are two options. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate. And narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. I was thinking this week in preparation for today's sermon about this particular passage. You know, often as I have done a lot of Uber driving, I haven't done it really all that much lately, but as I have done Uber driving, I see a lot of people that actually, I look at the wide gate often, the wide road. I wonder why would someone ever choose to go into 
the wide gate. I mean, if it leads to destruction, why would you choose that? Part of the reason is before they get there, it looks really attractive. On this side of the gate, it's really exciting. You see people partying and living it up and having a great time and making poor moral choices, but everybody's loving it. Problem is, once you get to the other side of the gate, it's not very attractive. I'm talking about individuals I pick up Uber driving. You know, sometimes I've picked people up on Friday night, and they're a blast. Excuse me. They're having all the fun in the world, but there have been times I've picked them up on Saturday morning. And often filled with nothing but regret and shame over whatever took place the night before. Sometimes they have no idea what took place the night before. The point is, it was really attractive on Friday night. But then they got there, and then they're thinking, wow, what was I thinking? Then you have the narrow gate. And very few choose that path. Maybe it's because everybody else is over here at the wide gate. And you see all the other people that you know and you love, they're going that way. And you're thinking, well, maybe I should be over there with them. Uh, You know what? I'm going to stay here. I know it's less glamorous. I know I may not be able to do some of the things that they're doing over there, but here's the deal. When I get to the other side of the gate, I believe that there is something far greater that awaits me. When I wake up in the morning, I don't have to worry about regret over what I did the night before. There's no shame whatsoever, but rather now I am celebrating the fact that my God has been faithful. And that's what it will be like when we get to eternity. Yes, the world around us is attractive. There are those who, man, they are living it up in their sin. But the problem is they're going to get to that gate, and when they get to the other side, it will not be a celebration. It will be a time of great sorrow. I will live on the narrow path because I know what awaits me on the other side will be worth it. One of the things that makes Christianity so unique is this promise of eternal life for those who will seek him. It is not earned, but rather it is given. All we have to do is to follow Christ through that gate. My challenge to you today is that you would follow Christ through the gate that he has to offer. What that may mean is maybe you can't do some of the things that other people do. It's going to be okay. In fact, you're going to be better off for it because the next morning you won't have to wake up in regret or the next eternity you won't have to wake up thinking, what have I done? But rather one day you will wake up in heaven in the presence of our heavenly father and he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And he will invite you to partake in all of his goodness. I know that there are other options that are out there but the best option will always be Jesus Christ. If you would bow your heads, Father, we thank you today for your grace. We thank you for the fact that you have given us curtain number two. That you've given us the opportunity to experience heaven in all of your glory. We thank you that even before that day comes, that you have sent your Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to give us even a glimpse of what heaven will be like. For we are in the presence of the Lord for all eternity, but even now, the presence of the Lord is in us. 
Lord, I pray today that each individual in this room would know the presence of the Holy Spirit in their personal lives. Would help us to constantly follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. Or where there is sin that would cause conflict between us and the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would remove that sin and I pray that you would help us to live as if the Spirit of God is not just something we talk about, but he is real in us. Father, I pray that you would make sure that we are ready when the day of judgment comes. We know we live in a world that seems to have everything figured out on their own. The truth is, whatever religious paths are out there, there is only one way that leads us to eternal life, and that is through your Son, Jesus Christ. So I pray today that you would help us to walk the path that we need to walk, to deny the flesh, to be willing to say no to the temptations and the offerings of our world, but instead to be able to stay faithful to you. And when that day comes, Lord, may we be able to rejoice over the reward that awaits us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is a blessing to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, I will be back. Someone asked me with me doing a sabbatical. You're coming back, right? Unless the Lord comes back sooner, and if he does, Tim, you can preach. I'm just kidding. Um, unless the Lord comes back sooner, yes, I will definitely be back, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for being with us, and I will, unless you come tonight, I will see you in July. Thank you for being with us. Go in peace.